Good morning. You know, actually, you're pretty alert. It would be the opposite in the spring when we'll get some lethargic responses from those who have been deprived of an hour of their sleep. I didn't see anybody here early this morning. I don't know if anybody would admit to it, but uh, I'm... (laughs) You're always here. (laughs) We're in Lesson 17 in our study in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. Uh, There is a line in one of my favorite movies that goes, This does not bode well. And, and I was thinking about occasions in all of our lives. Have you ever had a situation where it sort of started on the wrong foot and it just went worse, consistently worse? And you would say to yourself at some stage, this does not bode well. Uh, I guess I look at the Aaronic priesthood under that general label. Uh, when you think about the way it started and even the way it continued on, it, it wasn't the sort of thing that led you to have high expectations. Now, when you come to somebody like David, you know, it, you really get started, it seems, on the, on the right foot and it looks like things are really going and, and he sort of has a blowout uh, along the way, but at least it seems to start right. But with Aaron, you just say to yourself, as you read, this does not bode well. I mean, his first experience, here is the man who was the high priest, the first high priest of Israel, uh, of the Aaronic order under uh, the Levites, tribe of Levi. And the first great public act of being a, le- a worship leader is in Exodus 32 when he's making a golden calf. Now, don't you read that story? And don't you say to yourself... This does not bode well. And, and then you see this man who is to be the, the mediator between God's people and God, and yet every time that Israel gets in their great times of difficulty, who is it that mediates and get them out of, gets them out of the soup? It's Moses who mediates on their behalf. And so you, you just start out looking at Aaron and saying, hmm, I'm not sure how this is going to go. So in that sense, when we come to our text in Hebrews and we see the deficiencies of the Aaronic order, it really doesn't come to us as some huge surprise that we never had any clues that anything like that was going to happen because it seems to me that maybe you could say this of Aaron. He was consistent. Uh, I think you could say that for him uh, and maybe a little more, but not much. Let's think about the context that we have as we approach these last verses of Hebrews chapter 7. The subject of the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ is not really a new subject. When you look in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we read this. The Son is the radiance of His glory and the representation of His essence, and He sustains all things by His powerful word, And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, certainly that's a priestly duty, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Then you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. 
For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Hebrews chapter 7, or, or t- chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in the heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Now, as I look at those things, they're just previews. They're just kind of warm-ups, and he's saying to the reader, in effect, we're going to get to that subject. And he does that in various ways in, in the book of Hebrews, but he prepares us for the teaching on the priesthood of our Lord Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. It's really in chapters 4 through 8 that we see a sustained burst of teaching on this matter of priesthood. And I guess one could probably say it doesn't really even technically end at 8, but I think the bulk of the, of the whole order of Melchizedek teaching does. He is the sympathetic high priest at the end of chapter 4. Remember that chapters 3 and 4 are talking about the deficiency of man uh, in, in the model of the Israelites in the wilderness and how they failed to enter into rest, but that has application in general terms. And then he turns to the great sympathetic high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, he talks about him in a number of ways, but he says that he was perfected through suffering. Then you have that digression at 5.11, and that's where he wants to persist with his teaching on Melchizedek, but he says, because of your dullness in this whole matter, I find that I'm sort of swimming upstream in this, but he presses on uh, eventually, but there is that digression in 5.11 through 6.20. And actually the last verses of chapter 6 transition once again back to the subject of Melchizedek and his priesthood. So last week we talked about verses 1 through 10, and there we look back on Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110, specifically verse 4, and we saw how Melchizedek was a prototype of the Lord Jesus, and how in that story and the way that the psalmist David picks it up in Psalm 110, we see the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham, and in particular over Aaron, who is still in his loins, so to speak. And then in this message, we're talking about the superiority of Christ and his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek to that of uh, the priesthood of Aaron and, uh, and, and that being a part of the law. So let's, let's talk about the, uh, the first section, which I look at as verse 11 through 19. The reason for replacement, or I subtitled that, if it wasn't broken, you wouldn't need to fix it. And that's the way it starts. Verse 11 really breaks us into the subject matter for the remaining verses in chapter 7. He says, So if perfection had in fact been possible through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? You notice I've, I've sort of jumped over that uh, little clause in between, but the point is he's saying, if the Levitical priesthood really worked, then you wouldn't need a new order. You wouldn't need a fix. You wouldn't need a recall. It would have been fine on its own. 
Now, we need to make a couple of observations about this uh, statement that's made in verse 11. One, the if that you see at the very beginning of verse 11. That if is, is one that in the original text is indicating it isn't that way. Some ifs are, you assume it's true, some are, you assume it isn't true, and some it's maybe yes, maybe no. This one is, don't bet on it. Don't plan on this being the, the case. Perfection isn't, if we wanted to reverse the statement, what we would say is, since the Levitical priesthood and the law is not able to perfect, then it does need to be replaced. That's really the force of the argument. So the if clues us in to the impossibility, and we'll see that as the text develops. Now, the other issue that we need to deal with is that word perfection. That We're not talking about sinless perfection here. We're talking about completeness or about the fulfilling of a task. And virtually all the commentators that I've seen are really of one mind in that it means just that. It means that perfection is reaching the goal of drawing men near to God. Drawing near men near to God is the goal. And the bottom line is that the Levitical priesthood doesn't do that. Now, I'm not sure how far I'm willing to go on this, but I was thinking about this as the, in the flow of the, of the argument of the book of Hebrews. When you look at Hebrews 1 and 2 and you see the, the sufficiency and the adequacy of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you come to chapters 3 and 4 and the failure of that first generation of Israelites in the wilderness, you see the deficiency of men. When you come to this section, you also see the deficiency of the priesthood the Levitical priesthood and the law. And so you've really got a dual problem. You've got men who are sinners and a, and a priestly system that doesn't solve the problem. And that's why there has to be a better priesthood and a better covenant. And that's what our text and the next chapter is really about. So he says then that, he says, on the basis, on that basis, the people receive the law. And, and I understand it this way. He's telling us here, and he will emphasize it later, there is a direct correlation and connection between the Levitical priesthood and the law. The law will not work at all if it's sputtering, as it were, in the Old Testament. It wouldn't even be doing that without the Levitical system. The law assumes that there will be priests. Remember when you have the distinction made between clean and unclean? When you have someone who's had leprosy or a skin ailment and they have to come, it's the priest who will declare them clean. You have to have a priesthood to make it work. When someone sins and there needs to be a sacrifice, that depends upon a priesthood to make those sacrifices. So there is a, 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 a mutual dependence between the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, and the law. Those two come together. And as he's going to say momentarily, if one of them has to change, the other has to change as well. There is an interdependence between the Levitical priesthood and the law. And then he says finally that the replacement for this broken system is not going to be a replacement that comes through the ironic order. It's going to have to come in some other way, and of course that is the order of the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, I have two pictures for you, I believe, on the screen. I got these. These are illustrations of something that works but not well, okay? 
That's my point. You need to see something and, and that sort of graphically puts in front of you, here's what we're talking about with the law. This was sent to me by a fellow uh, that, that reads uh, Bible.org, and he sent me these pictures. And the first one, I wish I could have gotten the length of that. That's a 12-volt battery on top of his head. Get that. 12-volt battery on his head, a car tape player in his hands. Now, fix that in your minds. And this, believe me, folks, this sort of thing happens. Compare that to an iPod. And, and what you would say is, for, for all intents and purposes, if that fellow can listen to music, well, then it isn't all bad, right? But isn't an iPod better? See, you know, that's, that's the... I agree. It certainly is. Now, let's look at the next picture, and, and you'll see the picture of their ambulance. And, and you say, you know what? If you're sick and that's the only way to get to the hospital, better that than walking, right? But... Picture in your mind at Medical City and the, the helicopter that, you know, goes on and, and goes over to the scene and takes you to the hospital quickly and lands on the roof or whatever it is. That's good, but the helicopter's better. <laughs> it's just that simple. That's what our author, I think, is, is trying to say to us when he speaks about the Aaronic priesthood. It's not that it's bad. It's just that it's not adequate. Uh, for the job before it. The reason for replacement, if it weren't broke, you wouldn't have to fix it. A new priesthood, verses 12 through 17, a new priesthood requires a new law. We saw that in verse 11, that the law and the priesthood were interdependent. And now in verse 12, he reiterates that. For when the priesthood changes, a change in the law must come as well. And that's because, as he will play out, when you look in verses 13 and 14, when you look at the, the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, you look at our Lord's priesthood, it's obvious he was born of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. So the law prescribed that the priests would be priests that were Levitical priests, Levites. But Jesus isn't that. So it, you can't have Jesus appointed to a priesthood unless some revision or change is made to the law, which requires that it would be a Levitical priest. Verses 13 and 14. For the, uh, the one these things are spoken about belongs to a different tribe, that is, Jesus, and no one from that tribe has ever officiated at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord is descended from Judah, yet Moses said... Nothing about priests in connection with that tribe. So if you have a new order of priest, the priesthood after Melchizedek, and that order is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, then somehow we've got to get by this issue of the law. And the bottom line is the law will have to be superseded in the sense of its Levitical system. Another priesthood has to come into being that is not the priesthood of the letter of the law. A new priest, a new basis, not based on the law, but on an indestructible life. That's really playing this argument out. But let's look at verses 15 through 17. And this is even clearer if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not by a legal regulation about physical descent. That, of course, would be the law of Moses, speaking of Levitical priests. Um, 
I lost my place. Who has become a, a priest not by legal uh, regulation, about physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. You're saying, well, how can that be? Where does the power of an indestructible life come about as that which qualifies one to be that priest? What the writer is doing is basing his argument, his interpretation on Psalm 110. And so you'll notice in our text, he twice goes back to Psalm 110 and cites it. And he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So if you are going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, what is the requirement for you? It's that you live forever. And there's only one who lives forever, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? And so he is the one that fits that bill, and that is not a requirement that has been spelled out in the law. It is a requirement, so to speak, that has been set out in the prophets, in in the Psalms, speaking of the new order of priesthood that is to come. So in verses 18 and 19, then, you have sort of a summation. And he says, on the one hand, there's this. On the other hand, there's that. And so he says, on the one hand, the law is set aside due to its weakness. The law couldn't bring men to perfection. It couldn't bring men to where they could draw near to God in an intimate way like we can today. So the law was set aside because of its weakness and its failure to achieve perfecting men. Verses 18 and 19a. For on the one hand, a former command is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And yet he says, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the old can't bring men near to God. The new does bring men near to God. And now he's going to pick up this whole uh, concept of the oath that is associated with it, which gives us the confidence that it will indeed happen and happen uh, permanently. So we have a better covenant and a better priesthood, which replaces the old, and he describes that in verses 20 through 25. The new priesthood, he says, is based on God's oath, which is certain and changeless. Look at verses 20 through 22. And since this was not done without a sworn affirmation, for the others have become priests without a sworn affirmation, but Jesus did so with a sworn affirmation by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now this takes us back to to chapter 6. And you remember it talks about by two things, it is impossible for God to lie. The way I understood that and continue to understand it is it's the two things to which God has sworn by an oath. One is that David will be the the king. The other is that he will be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's what we find here in in chapter 7 and especially emphasized in, in verses 20 through 22. You do not see the Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests, sworn in or sworn into duty. They are the ones whose whose line is tracked by descent, and they are installed, but there is no oath. So the author's point is, when you come 
to the installment of the one who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, it comes with an oath. And he's already said, an oath is an affirmation that it is unchangeable. When he becomes installed as the priest, it is permanent, it is unchangeable, it is fixed and sure. Uh, it is permanent then in verses 23 through 25. And, and there he's talking about there were many Levitical priests. I, I've read that there's some uh, a fairly wide range in the estimate as to how many priests there were. But let's just suffice to say it was a bunch. They were a bunch of priests. And the reason why is that they died. And so every time a priest died, he had to be replaced. With one who is eternal, who lives forever, you don't have new priests being installed. He is the priest forever. It is permanent, and there is no need for a replacement. So then he sums up the argument in verses 26 through 28. Our high priest is right for us. I, I confess, I stole that from the TV. You know, it bugs me about the way they, they advertise pharmaceuticals. But you know that, that they always say, ask your doctor if this drug is right for you. Like, oh, please, give me a break. But what I'm saying is, he says it is fitting. And so what the author is saying is, this high priest is right for you. The doctor has spoken. This is right for you. He is the priest that you need. Not like the old order, but like the new order. He is the one who has been sworn in by oath. He is the one who lives forever. He is right for us. Verse 26. For indeed, it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So that's what he says then in the rest of 26 and 27. He is a perfect high priest. He is not a priest that is flawed with human weakness as Aaron and all of his successors were. He is one who is free from those weaknesses. Therefore, he does not, in verse 27, he does not have to make offerings for his own sins first and then offerings for the sins of the people because he has no sin. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the perfection of our Lord as it's symbolized in the bread. The reason that he can make a sacrifice for us in our behalf is that he's not sacrificing for himself. He sacrifices as one who is perfect, without flaw. And you remember that the animal that was sacrificed had to be one that was without blemish, without flaw, because that was a picture of the one who was going to be the Lamb of God. He's appointed, um, he makes an offering for sins once for all because there is no flaw in the offering itself. There is no flaw in the one who is the offerer. And notice, by the way, it is the priest who would typically sacrifice the animal. In this instance, the high priest sacrifices himself for the sins of men. And so... He, uh, he makes one offering that is once for all. And, of course, later in Hebrews, we'll be seeing that expression used again of our Lord's sacrificial work. He was appointed by God's oath and not merely by the law, verse 28. And he is a son who is made perfect forever. 
Now, we talked about the son being perfected in the sense that he was qualified for the work that he would do by taking on human flesh, by suffering, by being tempted and, and, and being victorious and all that. He is the one who has been perfected. And I think the point is this. The law could not make one perfect. The Old Testament priestly order could not make one perfect. But our great high priest is the one who is made perfect, and therefore all those who are trusting in him, all of those who are drawing near to him, are indeed perfected by his person and his work. So let's think about some of the, of the main points that, that the writer has been making in our text. First of all, the ironic, uh, the ironic priest, ironic priesthood, um, Aaronic priesthood and the law were never able to perfect men. It just wouldn't work. It was, it, it was like, you know, a temporary fix, but it, there was just no way. It was a patch. It, it was a clue. It put off, as it were, the, the sins and the payment for sin, as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, but we were waiting. Somewhere, sometimes, somebody has to pay the debt. And so it was not able to perfect the Aaronic priesthood. For those who were infatuated with the old system, they, ha- they would have to see that they are infatuated and attracted to a system that didn't work in terms of drawing men to God. Secondly, the priests of the law established boundaries between men and God. When you think about the Old Testament and you think about the Old Testament law, it did not remove barriers. It, it put them up. Did you follow that? When you look, for instance, at, 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 our, at our Lord, when, uh, at, at God, when he reveals himself on Mount Sinai, you remember that he kept sending Moses back down and saying, now tell those people, don't come too close. Don't let their animals come too close. If you touch this mountain, you're going to die. There were barricades, as it were. There was yellow police tapes set up, proverbially speaking, so that men did not get too close to God. The, the solution from an Old Testament standpoint, if you can't bring men to God, then you have to set up barriers so they don't get too close to God or they die. In Exodus, when, when uh, uh, Israel sins by worshiping the golden calf, God says to Moses, I'm not going to go up with you. And the reason is that if this people got too close to me, I'd kill them. I'd have to. They're such rascals. There was no way for the law to solve that problem. And so you have the tabernacle, and then you have the temple, and you have these barriers that are set up, and only one man, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies, into the nearest proximity to God, only one person once a year. And if you think that's uh, all it was, then you have to remember, too, that when the temple is established in Jerusalem, there were three feasts. Remember those three feasts? And the men were required, all of the men of Israel were required to go and participate in that feast. Now, I don't think the women and children were prohibited from going, but the reality was that they had to pack up and leave the farm and make that trek to Jerusalem. Here, every, you know, we have... Uh, a gathering here on Sunday. We don't think about uh, how easy it is for us on Sundays to get here. They got there three times a year. 
that's, that's as often as, as many of them could get there to go. And so when you read about the Israelites talking about the wonder and the glory of being at the temple of our Lord, man, if you're, if you're only there three times a year, no wonder it's so glorious. We have the freedom to come into God's presence, not only as a collective body, but every moment, every day, we have access, whereas they had barriers and boundaries. Thirdly, a new order of high priest based upon a new law is what was needed and what we have in Christ. In other words, and the, and the author is really going to pick this up in chapter 8, but what the new law is the new covenant. That's the basis on which all of this gets fulfilled. And the, the whole order of Melchizedek then is founded upon that new covenant as opposed to the old which can only anticipate it and look forward to it. So what's the application for the original recipients of this letter? I was teaching a Bible study in the Gospel of John, and we were in chapter 12, and I found this really interesting. You remember, there's, it's right after that statement uh, where the Lord is saying, uh, My soul is troubled, verse 27, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. I love that text because it sort of offsets Mark chapter 14 where he says, if there's some way, some, you know, then, then, then keep me from this hour. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But here, he's facing the cross and, he, and you see the resolve and the determination that is there. Uh, but anyway, then when you get down to verse 31, he says, now judgment is upon this world. The rule of this world will be casted out. Um, if I be lifted up from the earth... I will draw all men to myself. Uh, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. The multitude, therefore, answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son must be lifted up? So they're perplexed. But what's interesting to me is the old, these Jewish, uh, uh, this Jewish audience realized that there was something of great value in, in being uh, forever. They saw that as a real plus. So when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he's talking about his death. The same word is also used of his exaltation. But being lifted up here is talking about his being lifted up on a cross. So they know he's, under, he's talking about death, and they're saying, wait a minute, the kind of Messiah that we want is a Messiah who lives forever. We've had enough of these dead guys. We want somebody who lives on. What they didn't understand is he had to die and be raised from the dead to live forever. He does fulfill that, but they saw the value of living forever, and they saw the weakness, so to speak, in their own minds of not living forever, but of dying. Let me drop you down a few verses to verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. This is after he quotes that text from Isaiah chapter 6, and it talks about their eyes being blinded and their ears being dulled and their hearts being made fat, lest they would hear and understand and repent. In other words, this has been their last hour of decision. I've always wondered what it was that turned that crowd, which uh, earlier on 
in this text is welcoming Jesus as the Messiah. And now you see them just a few days later saying, crucify, crucify. How does that happen? It seems to me that Jesus here leads them to the point of decision. And some people are saying, we don't want it. We don't want that. This is, it looks to me like the turning point. And then it says that Jesus went away and hid from them in the end of verse 36. It looks like this is their final hour of decision before his, his crucifixion. But what's interesting to me is in verse 42 and 43, look at the pressure that is brought to bear. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. This was a text I didn't include uh, in a previous message where I was talking about the degree of pressure which believing or unbelieving Jews placed upon uh, Jewish Christians not to go all the way, as it were, with Jesus, but to fall back into the, into the Jewish system and, and way of doing things. This is amazing. And, of course, we know Nicodemus is one of those, do we not? John chapter 7, remember they sent the police out to, to bring Jesus back, and, and, the, and the police come back, the guards, the temple guards, and, and they come back empty-handed, and the Pharisees say to him, well, where is he? They said, well, we, we, we went there and we heard him, but we just never heard anybody talk like that. And then Nicodemus speaks up and he says, wait a minute, aren't we condemning Jesus without giving him due process? Shouldn't we have given him a trial and heard what he had to say? And they, and they basically said, are you as dumb and stupid as the rest of these people are? Nobody amongst the Pharisees has believed, have they? But what this text tells me, there was more than Nicodemus. There was more than Nicodemus who believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him because they feared what men said. And the reason I put that here is when you look at Hebrews, it seems to me that that helps explain the intensity of the pressure that was applied on Jewish Christians to fall back into Judaism and in a sense to renounce the work of Christ and to become embroiled in the old Ironic system and in the law rather than in the new covenant and Christ. Application to original recipients. You can't draw near through the old. You can only draw near through Christ. That's what he's trying to say. So these people who had somehow a fetish, the old is better, which you actually hear in the Gospels, the old is better. It's not true. You know, can you imagine there were some of those in the assembly of believers who were saying, oh, the good old days, those good Old Testament days, the order of Aaron, the priesthood, all of that. The author of Hebrews is saying, forget it. They weren't good old days. The system didn't work. It couldn't bring men near to God. It had to be replaced. And if you turn back, you turn back to what's inferior, not what is superior. Application for Christians today. We need to recognize how privileged we are in comparison with Old Testament saints. Have you ever found yourself saying, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to live in the days of Abraham when God spoke directly to you and and all of that? Hebrews says, God has spoken finally and fully in his son. Let me tell you, Abraham would swap chairs with you any day of the week. He would rather know what you've heard from Jesus than for you to know what he heard from God from time to time. So, 
realize what we have in our freedom, in our access to draw near into intimate fellowship with God is something that nobody in those old days had to the degree that we have it. We ought to recognize that and rejoice in it. The absolute sufficiency of Christ. He is all we need. It can't be more clear than that. He is the one who made the atonement once for all. He is the one to whom, uh, who goes on behalf of, of the believer in need and intercedes with the Father and gives us help in our moment of need. He is what we need. He is the sufficient one. He is the one after the order of Melchizedek who lives forever, who will not die, whose work because it is sworn by oath is a work that will not change. The old is not better. Drifting back into Judaism is drifting away from Christ. It's just that simple. Now, it's easy for us, I think, at this stage of the game to say, well, you think of this only in terms of the Hebrew believers in the church at that time. But the real question is, do we have priestly counterparts today? Do we have people to whom we turn rather than Christ? I think that's a very real danger. Uh, and I just mentioned some. And I'm not against any of these things, but I just really suggest them to you. Discipleship. Discipleship is a wonderful thing. But there is a danger, my friend, of the discipler becoming the mediator for the disciplee. If you're a discipler like John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, don't follow me, follow him. A discipler points men to Jesus and says, you follow him. Because they can only take us so far. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that we ought not to have undue dependence or devotion to people who get between us and Jesus. He is the one to whom we are to draw near. Mentoring. That's kind of a you know, new term, but bottom line is, uh, it, it, do you have a mentor to whom you turn rather than Christ? If you do, it's wrong. Your mentors and my mentors ought to be people who are Christ-focused and they keep pointing to Him, not to themselves, to follow their ways. Accountability groups, they're good things too. But there is a way in which an accountability group, you can feel more responsible and accountable to another person than you do to him. He is the one to whom we will give account. He is the one who is going to judge us or commend us. We're accountable to him. And if some man has gotten between us and him, something's gone wrong. And that's just the same thing that we see in Hebrews. Counseling. I, I, I want to be very careful because counseling that points men to Christ is the most valuable thing that can ever happen. But I have to tell you, in the secular world of psychiatry, counselors, therapists are the new high priests. They are the ones to whom people go, they make their confession, they get their guidance, and I am saying to you, every counselor who is doing it right is going to counsel by God's word, and he's going to counsel you to follow Jesus. That's the way it ought to go. And if there is counseling that's happening here or anywhere else, if there is counseling that's happening that points men to follow men, then we're doing exactly the same thing that the Hebrews were tempted to do, to fall back into a system that was man-centered rather than Christ-centered. 
And I put shepherding there too. Shepherds sometimes can get a little carried away with themselves and a little too struck with their authority and their direction. And again, we are under shepherds. Peter makes that clear. He is the chief shepherd. We have responsibilities as we shepherd the flock, but it is always, as our Lord says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. There should be nobody else's voice that's heard like his and no one that should be followed like him other than Christ. He is the one that we should follow. Father, we thank you for our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice for sin once for all. Thank you that he is the one who has come by way of an oath. It is unchanging. And he is the one who lives forever so that he will never die. He will never be replaced. And he is the one who, unlike the Old Testament priests, can bring us into the very presence of you, the Father. Thank you for him. May we follow him. May we trust in him. May we look to him, not only for our initial salvation, but for, for him, for guidance, for intercession, for help in our time of need. For we need you every hour. If there is someone here apart from Christ, we pray that they would see him as the great provision, the only one that can bring men near to you, who can forgive sins, and guide us unto a relationship of intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen.